When we share our stories, something magical happens. We magnify the power and the purpose that our stories contain. I'm Amanda Solar, the host of Soulful Connections. Come on this journey with me and let's connect. Connection. I am so happy that I have Omar Brownson on my podcast. Omar, I want you to know, full disclosure, I was nervous to ask you. And I thought, you know what? He can always say no, right? Yeah, nervous just means you care. That's right. That's right. You're a public speaker. You're a civic leader. You're an entrepreneur. You co-founded a gratitude-blooming app called G Thanks GTX. Is that right? Uh, separate companies. Uh, so I, oh. I founded a, a gratitude app called G Thanks. Um, okay. And uh, uh, and then uh, developed a partnership with Gratitude Blooming. With okay, can you kind of start off by just sharing a little bit of your journey? Like, what are you doing right now? And because rarely do I hear somebody says, you know, when I grow up, I want to be something to do with gratitude and yeah. optimism. You know, can yeah. you kind of share how that happened? Yeah, I mean, my career is mostly in finance and real estate, and I was leading one of the largest green infrastructure projects in the country, um, collaborating with the architect, Frank Gehry, so one of the most famous architects in the world. And it was a dream job at the intersection of nature and culture, and um, and I loved it, and I also burned out. Um, and I got to a point where it was either double down and spend another kind of, I was there, I was the founding executive director of the organization. So I was there for about eight years, nine years, and it was either double down or try something different. And, you know, I, my mantra, um, since I was about 18 years old was I want to build the world I want to live in. And I kind of took that very literally, um, in part because uh, when I was 18 years old here in Los Angeles, we had the civil unrest. And I remember seeing my city on fire and remembering both how fragile cities are, but so is democracy. And so I just got in my head and I kind of took that idea of building the world I want to live in literally and started on sort of the political side of real estate and then built some projects in Philadelphia, actually. Um, really? And in Mount Airy. Uh, and then went on the finance side. And then the river was sort of an opportunity to bring all those things together. Um, and then about, let's see, I was, it was about eight years ago. Um, so I was still working on the river that I had an opportunity to go on a, uh, silent retreat and 
it was uh, a foundation that supported sort of travel fellowships to really think differently about the work. And so I had trips to Singapore, Indonesia, and Holland, different places that have incredible water infrastructure projects. And uh, But I told the foundation before I go to visit all these places, I want to do this silent retreat. And they were like, oh, Omar, you must be mistaken. You didn't receive a sabbatical. Uh, you know, and I was like, I, I understand that. But you're asking me to think differently about my work, and I want to first go inward before going outward. And so they said, oh, totally get that. Um, they, by the way, now encourage every fellow to do something similar. Uh, so I went up to Big Sur, which is in Northern California, 1,200 feet up in the bluffs, looking out over the Pacific Ocean uh, to this monastery. And I'd never done anything like it, but I was like, wait, who went in my, in my life? Am I going to be given opportunity? Somebody's going to basically pay me uh, to do this. And so I I did it. And I won't go into the details of that week, but I'll just say at the end, um, I got to talk to this monk and I told him, look, in all of this silence, what was deafening was how impatient of a human being I am. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he put his face right up to mine. And he just laughed at me. He said, Omar, the root word for impatience in Latin is patis, which means to suffer. He said, this is your burden to carry. I was like, this is what I get for six days of silence. I get to sort of carry around suffering. And I was like, well, how are you supposed to get things done in the world and be non-attached at the same time? And he said, Omar, non-attachment doesn't mean indifference. You can still care and be non-attached. And I was like, why do you do that? He said, well, that's for you to figure out. And so, you know, I, I've spent in some ways the last eight years figuring that question out of how do you care and still be non-attached? And, you know, and I think I tried meditation um, I meditate every day for six days or uh, for six months. And at the end of six months, realized I was just as stressed out as I was before. Still a dad, still a husband, still leading a very complicated project. And uh, so then I was like, well, this isn't working, even though meditation's supposed to be great. And, and I think it is great, you know, but it just wasn't <laughs> working for me at the time. And so I, you know, I heard about mindfulness and I was like, okay, you know, maybe instead of like carving time out of my day, how do I just be present throughout my day? And so mindfulness is the practice of noticing change. So then I was like, okay, but then I stumbled into the practice of gratitude and something fundamentally shifted. I actually, you know, it was with um, one of my daughters and, you know, putting little kids to bed can be exhausting. Um, if you've ever been a parent and you, yeah. you, know, three. Been, you know, it's been a long day and you, you have your whole bedtime ritual and you put them to bed and then you put them to bed again and then again, and, you know, by the third or fourth time, you know, that patience is gone. And so I remember yelling at one of my daughters and, and at this point, I had already shifted away from the river. And uh, she, I remember saying, she's like, Dad, 
you're building a gratitude app and you're angry. <laughs> you know, and I was like, ooh, <laughs> you know, kids can get to the heart of the matter. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, I took that in the next day. I was like, you know what? You're right. I was angry with you, but I feel like I'm way slower to anger than I've ever been. And she's like, she took that in. And the next day she's like, you know what, dad, you are more patient now. And so that very thing that the monk had said wasn't, was just sort of my burden to carry of impatience. I realized I could put that burden down. Um, I didn't have to carry it everywhere. And so, you know, I think it just became something that I pursued. And when I, when I pursue things, I tend to pursue them to the nth degree. And so, you know, and I founded the app and which we're in the process of closing down by the way, but you know, it was incredible sort of learning, um, of something totally different. Um, and it really m encouraged me to like focus on what gratitude looks like. And so to me, I think, you know, meditation begins with noticing each breath. Mindfulness begins with noticing change. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have told you gratitude begins with noticing good. But I think my definition has evolved. And I would say gratitude is really the practice of noticing with your heart. Because I think part of what I've learned is that you can feel all your emotions without becoming all your emotions. And that sort of ability to notice and name, right? Own it, but then also know that you can let it go. And fortunately, the neuroscience is on your side. And so these practices aren't necessarily about willpower. Right. Um, willpower and psychologists call it... Um, uh, Ego deplenishment is actually the technical oh, is that, yeah. for willpower. So you can get things done. I think what I've done is use willpower sort of throughout my life. And that's, you know, go to fancy schools and you get the sort of fancy jobs and, you know, you do all those things. Um, but it's not really sustainable. I didn't, I didn't find it sustainable. And so something like gratitude is a regenerative energy, meaning the more that you practice it, the more you have of it. Um, and so, you know, it's, that's a, as, as quick of a snapshot of <laughs> how I got to where I am today. You gave me chills a million times on different levels and also opened the door to so many questions because what I'm so fascinated by Omar is what were you like as a child? Because to have I want to build the world I want to live in as a mantra when you're a young man, that's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and were you, were you living, you know, were your parents extremely mindful people? Were they, did they impress upon you um, practices that you're now incorporating? Like how, what was your childhood like? Yeah, I would say the pendulum swings in different directions. So, you know, my parents divorced and um, when I was young and, uh, but, you know, they early on um, impressed on me sort of a sense of the world. By the time I was three, had been around the world twice and had lived wow. in Saudi Arabia for a year and a half. Wow. And, um lived up in Pacific Northwest, like lived on an Indian reservation, lived in Vancouver, Canada. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I got it into sort of an early age, just a sense of different cultures, different people, and also a little bit of an outsider, right? My name's Omar. I'm a six foot two, six foot three, Asian ish American looking guy. And I never fit in any, you know, like, um, and I remember, you know, in a high school, you have to check those boxes of uh-huh. like who you are. And it was like white, black, you know, Asian, Latino. And at the time, I sort of felt like other just as a mixed kid. Right. My dad is um, white dude from Des Moines, Iowa. Um, my mom is uh, fourth generation Chinese American. Um, and so, you know, I had a sense of of what you can see and not see. Yes, that's really powerful. I want to, as an aside, I would love to do a whole podcast on, <laughs> on just that. And, you know, I find that fascinating. My kids are like that. You know, my husband is Puerto Rican and I am not. <laughs> and that what you can see and what you cannot see and who are you if people look at you and see this. People look at my husband and they do see a Puerto Rican for the most part, you know, and they look at my kids and depending upon which kid we're talking about, you know, they could see different things. And who are you? You know, are you who people see? I find that fascinating. I find that. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, in, and in some ways, you know, when I talk about gratitude as making good visible. Yes. What I also talk about is fearless gratitude, which is how do we see what we're making invisible, right? Because what we make invisible, we take for granted, right? And gratitude is about disrupting that habit of taking things for granted. We do it all yes. the time, you know, and, and and what we take for granted just becomes habit, right? Habit is what we do without thinking. And so what is that then intention um, we call practice, right? Practice is anything that disrupts habit. Um, you know, and I think these things are cultural. You know, my my father um, did not um, grow up with his father. Um, you know, he his father, um, we don't know exactly what happened. We think he went to a mental health institution, but it was one of those things that wasn't discussed, right? Mental health right. wasn't something that you talked about. He just knew that, as a 10 year old, he went away for summer camp. And when he came back, his dad wasn't there and nobody said anything. Wow. You know, and, uh, and my mom, you know, in a, in a Chinese culture, uh, the word love was not used and just wasn't, it wasn't that there wasn't love there. It just wasn't expressed in a literal sense. Um, and so you have these, and I think this is, what's really important is that habits are generational. You know, mm-hmm. and I think part of what I realized as a dad was like, oh, what do I really want to pass on to my daughters? Do I want to pass on that anger or that inability to articulate emotions and feelings? Right. Like, no, that's not what I want to give them. And so that means I have to do the work. And, you know, and I think there's a great quote that I've been just obsessed with recently um, by Reverend Kyoto. I think Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, 
And she says that no change is possible without interchange. No change matters without collective change. Wow. And that to me is really the powerful gratitude as a pro-social emotion is that it's at that intersection of our self-care and our care for others. It's this bridge between who we are within ourselves and who we are with each other. That's powerful because I did take notice of the fact that you said gratitude practice, you know, and a practice implies a couple of things. One, it implies that you need to do it over and over again to get good at it. That's, you know, and it's a system. It's a way of life. It's not just kind of going, Oh, I'm grateful for this. And then moving on and having it be a sporadic presence in your life. I can tell it's intentional. Um, And what I'm curious about too, you're from, I mean, your world with River LA was, um, you know, you were bridging the gap. I would think you dealt with a lot of business leaders and community leaders. So when you talk about gratitude, for example, that's not always discussed in a business circle. For example, I spent over 30 years with the Chamber of Commerce, dealing with business and business growth. And we talked about cash management and marketing and lead generation. And there wasn't a whole lot of talk about intentionality and gratitude and optimism and things like that. How do you bridge that? How do you have this conversation? With whom do you have this conversation? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that this is just language. It's yeah. not that business, businesses care absolutely about culture, right? And that what's the classic saying? Culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And right. so in that context, it's professional development, right. right? And so, you know, and I think there is just a growing awareness, you know, like my daughters now, social emotional learning is part of their curriculum. You know, I, I used to joke that like we have schools to train our brains, gyms to train our bodies, and we end up training our emotions on each other. And so like, That's you really know, part it. of it is then now learning like, well, what are the settings that we can intentionally train our emotions, right? Like, and I think before I used to think that, oh, some people are just calm and some people are not, right? Like, and you were just born that way. And emotions were like these wild horses trampling over the prairie and usually it was I was the prairie you know getting trampled over and and I think you know it's learning over time like oh no like I've trained I've did a couch to 5k and then I did a 10k and then I did a half marathon and then I did a marathon and I had another marathon and so like oh okay there's these building steps that I know in sports or you know physical Mm. practice i know that like if i study for a test the more times that i sort of take the practice test then the likelier i am going to get a higher score right and so we give ourselves room and permission to test and fail and try again in these other settings why don't we do that with our emotions right And so emotions are no different, right? Like emotions, 
uh, one definition of emotion is just a, a, a mental shortcut. It's an, you know, it's just a way to sort of bypass sort of quote unquote, our thinking. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is, and this is why now I'm look, trying to sort of talk about gratitude is really the practice of noticing with the heart. Is there are a few different reasons? So I, a recent study, um, was flagged by Jack Cornfield. He's one of the leading kind of meditation teachers in the country. And he found that if you add compassion or loving kindness to your meditation or mindfulness practice, it accelerates the benefits to your brain and nervous system 10x. 10x. Wow. Like that's ridiculous, right? Like that's a huge growth. Like if you're in business, you're like, hey, I want a 10x growth. You'd be like, wow, that's insane. How about let's go for five, right? Or, you know, whatever the number right. feels uh, achievable. And so, you know, the word mindfulness is taken from Chinese uh, and specifically the word xian, X-I-N, which in its original translation meant heart-mind. So Western culture sort of took the mind part, but left the heart part, you know, and this is, you know, if you're familiar with Rene Descartes, you know, Mm -hmm. who wrote uh, Cogito Ergo Sum, right? I think, therefore I am. He wrote that 400 years ago, right? I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. I've separated my thoughts from everything else, from my body, from my emotions. And so part of it is recognizing like, no, we can't separate these things. They're part and parcel to each other. And so, you know, to see now the science that says, hey, compassion, love, and kindness are really practices of the heart and they're practices of really of how you relate to other people and to yourself. But we already have a fairly individualistic orientation in our culture. And so, you know, while it is important to practice self-care, it is equally, if not more so, to practice care for others, right? And to find that balance. And, you know, and this is why to me, like the practice of gratitude, particularly in organizations and businesses is so powerful is that, you know, it's about really how do we relate to each other, right? And and I don't know who gets the credit for this quote, but... uh the only difference between wellness and illness is we versus I, like in the literal spell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like such a great, like, yeah. hey, you know, we say, hey, you want to go feel better, you know, and this is where I think why the mindfulness or the meditation ultimately didn't resonate at first. Now they are part of my regular practice, but it was really about developing that sort of like, how am I connected to something bigger than myself? And that's what gratitude often helps you do is like, I didn't create the sun. I didn't create the air. I didn't create so many different, even if you think about the expression, pause to smell the roses. Right. You didn't create the rose. (laughs) You didn't create the scent. All you're doing is pausing to acknowledge something beautiful that you happen to walk by. Right. And then that's the, that's like, I would say like gratitude sort of, 101. And then I would say the fearless gratitude is 
well, what even makes the rose the rose, right? It's the soil and the ground. It's the rain in the air. It's the sun in the sky. You know, it's the bees that are pollinating. There's all these other things that even just made the rose a rose. And so you, you're, when you pause and just smell the rose, like that is just, that's the beginning point, not the end. Right. That's deep. You know, I just heard something the other morning that somebody said, list and find all of the reasons to be gratitude for the things that frustrate you the most or the most difficult things in your life or an experience that happened that caused suffering. And actually I found that to be a really informative practice because there are so many things to be grateful for within that. <laughs> you know, and, and what's interesting too with you is it's so obvious how intelligent you are. So when I think about, you know, Deepak Chopra always says, eh, Western culture says it's mindfulness. It's really mindlessness, but I'm going to get with it because that's what they say. <laughs> and because he believes the mind is only part of your whole self and that mind can sometimes limit you at the brain, the ego, all of the things associated with the brain can sometimes step in front of your own growth. It's really, you know, an interesting. So that whole, I, I love that you're talking about bringing the heart in. Yeah, I think it's, it's like uh, heartfulness is the new mindfulness. Oh, nice. Very nice. Um, I have to say one more thing about, I'm just picturing where this came from. And I'm thinking, so when you, did you major in philosophy? Did you, or are you just an avid reader, but you majored in finance or like, how, how are you putting together these accomplishments with you know, this, this road? You know, I, I studied in undergrad. Um, I had a, what was it? International relations with an emphasis on global resources and environment. And then I did a double major in nature and culture. So I've always been interested in that intersection. And then even in grad school, um, I did a joint degree between the Kennedy school and Harvard design school. And it was, um public policy and urban planning and so i've always in some ways just actually had these double majors and looked at two different ways of looking at the world and like you know what was interesting about grad school was at the kennedy school policy people tend to be kind of incremental in their thinking right like what's that sort of where can we find some political consensus to move the dial a degree you know Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, what's the art of the possible, right? It's politics sometimes, you know, these days <laughs> it, it yeah. feels oh. more <laughs> impossible. Um, whereas right. the design school, there's sort of a tabla rasa, like blank slate, like, hey, let's just design regardless of limitation. And so, I, you know, I've always appreciated that, like, well, what is that incremental thing that we need to do, right? Like, it's like a practice, right? Like, what is that daily thing? But also, I think, as you said, the word intention, what is that greater idea, right? Um, I can't remember if I talked about this one in our initial conversation, but my favorite definition of intention is from um, Bishop T.D. Jakes. And he says, the only difference between planting and burying something is intention, because only one expects renewal and growth. And so intention is like, what is it that we want to grow? 
versus what is it we're really just burying you know and like right and like putting to rest so what about um what do you do in your free time is this are you a reader do you have free time what is like a perfect day for you what you wake up you're anywhere you want to be with anybody with whom you want to be what does a perfect day look like for omar for omar brownson <laughs> yeah you know i mean i would say that um as I, I tell my daughters, practice makes progress. You know, I don't tell them practice makes perfect. And so I would say that it includes um, walking. Walking has become a regular practice for me. And just I've found that having meditated a lot, you know, and tried different sort of Qigong and mindful sort of movements, what is that? the easiest and most consistent uh, and probably most just joyful for me is walking. Um, and I've learned to sort of incorporate different practices into my walk. Um, you know, I'm naturally curious, obviously. And so I think always sort of trying to, how do we improve something? Um, you know, I would say that like I threw a traditional career out the window and, and like I'm making it all up at this point. Um, That's so cool. You know, and so really trying to find that balance between that entrepreneurial itch that is like, let's go build and create. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just what is like pays the bills, right? Like right. how to find that balance. I would say I have not found that balance, right? Like it's sort of it's still extremes. And I think part of it is, you know, I think at one point there was sort of a really large ambition and, but it was achieved through lots of willpower. And so part of the challenge now is like how to marry that ambition, but be more patient about what it means to sort of pursue something. And what about where do you seek inspiration? So if you wake up now, I mean, it is, you're, you're making it up. So if you wake up and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to rewatch a season of Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> what, where do you find inspiration? What do you do for inspiration? I mean, that's, what's cool about inspiration is it, I think by and large inspiration comes to you, right? Like, I remember asking um, one of the partners at Frank Gehry's firm, like his definition of design. And he said, it's to have a spark of inspiration and to hold on to it with dear life. Right? Because if anybody's been in real estate, oh, like right. real estate is not in the technical sense of very inspiring, right? Like you've got land acquisition, you've got permitting you've got community engagement you've got sort of the design process was it you know there's some part of design that feels sort of creative but then there's like how many units of whatever how many square uh -huh. feet of whatever what's the commercial kind of return of investment on that um then you've got sales and marketing and then you got like when you break down the process none of it feels like you know it's all it exactly. can be very cool to go look at a building but how is this beautiful right like um, but the process to get there, it can be very painful. So I always just love that, right? Like to have a spark of inspiration. And, and I think part love of it. it then is to then know like, wow, this is inspiring. How do I actually 
hold on to that, you know, and treat it like a, a flame that needs some nurturing. Um, can you share, speaking of sparks of inspiration, like multiple sparks of inspiration, the gratitude blooming cards, can you share what are they? Yeah. So, I mean, the gratitude blooming cards were inspired by an artist, Arlene Kimsuda, who had a project called the hundred days of blooming love. And each day she wanted to really move beyond the inspiration of art and really into the discipline and practice of noticing. And through that practice of drawing one new plant each day, in some ways she began to like, listen to the plant, right? So not just looking at it, but how do you like listen? How do you have empathy? Um, and so she started to marry the drawing with a word that came to her. A friend of her saw these at the end of hundred days and were like, these are so beautiful. We should create something out of them. So they selected 39 of the plants and the themes uh, to become a physical card deck. And then in 2020, I started collaborating with them during the pandemic. I was hosting a thankful Thursday series and I was inviting different wellness, mindful gratitude, you know, teachers, practitioners, right. Belinda was one of them. I really appreciated the practice. Um, and we created a digital version that we started in working with organizations and teams. Um, cause it was really about this cultural shift. Uh, cause even when I had developed the app, it was still, even though we created a public journal within the app, it's didn't have that connection um that i think is so important um around gratitude and moving beyond just sort of our own self-care to caring for others um you know simon sinek who i've done some collaborations with he calls it you go to the bookstore and there's a whole section around self-help and there's nothing around help for others right and so mm. what's that sort of cultural shift um mm -hmm. that there would be a help others section of a bookstore um, and so, yeah, I feel like gratitude blooming kind of has found a, a really helpful entry point. And I think part of it is just because nature is all around us. It's something that we can all access in some ways, even if it's just flowers at, in front of a house, right? Like how do I sort of pause and notice that in, in a different way? And then the themes are really sort of universal values, right? Uh, from sort of, uh, joy to humility to forgiveness to vulnerability and you know i think part of the challenge of gratitude practices sometimes is that people tend to just be grateful for the same things over and over i'm grateful for a new day i'm grateful for my family right and you know and really the power of gratitude is in the connecting to it at an emotional level and so the more specific you can become about what you're, even if it's a really small thing, like I'm just grateful. Like I just planted a rose in my courtyard and it's just like a small nub. Uh, but I'm so excited uh, for this little nub and seeing like each little flower coming. And then I've like started to research like, oh, what are good companion plants to help roses grow? And I've like learned like lavender uh, is a good companion plant. So then I, oh, we have a lavender plant. It's like, oh, I'm going to do a cutting. And so it just becomes all this, each of those little moments um, 
is then where I think we find uh, that the practice begins to work for us and and the cards are a physical reminder. And that's what any practice needs is a reminder, a routine, and a reward. How do you bring those three things together? Uh, and that's what the cards help do. Oh, I like that. Um, so is your is your mission still the same? That you want to create the world in which you want to live? Build the world I want to live in? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's evolving. I would say that it's also just living the world that I want to live in now. Oh, right. That one you for know. you would be good because you do seem driven. <laughs> right. So sometimes you can be like, oh, I'm going to go do that. Right. Like if you think about yes. infrastructure, like I'm imagining the future of a city in 20 years, right. And putting the infrastructure in place. Wow. And so part of it is like how to just be present to what is now and just appreciate yeah. that. So the proverbial magic wand question, I have a magic wand that I give you right this second and you can make one change in the world. And I know you'd probably love to make a million changes in the world, but you've only got the magic wand for a short time. What do you think you would do? I, you know, I, I do think that this idea around heartfulness is the new mindfulness. Like, how do we help people connect to their feelings and emotions in a way that enables them to have more compassion, to have more loving kindness, right? Like we had glimpses of it during the pandemic, right? Better mm -hmm. together than apart. Right. Um, there were these moments where we're like, oh, right. We're not, you know, islands unto ourselves, right? We are sort of interconnected. Uh, yeah. So I think if we can just find that small step uh, to finding uh, that interconnection, you know, that'll, that'll change things. Perfect. Well, I have to tell you, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you exist in the world, actually, Omar. Yeah, I'm oh. exhausted. You go do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, and I'm so thankful that you took the time and said yes when I asked. I really am. I think I am going to re-listen and re-listen because there are so many nuggets that you share that I can actually apply to my own life. So not only am I happy to share this with other people, I'm just happy to selfish enough to be happy to share it with myself. Well, congratulations and, and good job turning your uh, selfishness into selflessness as you sort of bring these conversations together and then share them out to the world. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, consider letting people know and giving me a super rating and subscribing and, you know, all that good stuff. And finally, I just have to give Bill Aronson a shout out because he is the talented musician who wrote, produced, and recorded the Soulful Connections podcast theme song. It's the best, Bill's the best, and you're the best. Thanks again.